When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the video-inclusive, but also audio-friendly No Film School podcast for the week of October 14th, 2022. I'm Charles Hayne. I'm a filmmaker, and a writer, and a shooter and stuff. And I'm here with Gigi Hawkins, filmmaker. Hello. Uh, cin- uh, cinematographer and filmmaker Todd Blankenship. How's it going? Producer, writer, and editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And this week on the No Film School podcast, first off, we're <laughs> talking about box office bombs in honor of David O. Russell's bomb last weekend lessons to be learned from bombs frustrations we all have with the concept of a bomb and uh some sneaky little movies that people thought were bombs but weren't the our second story this week we're going to be talking about the tiktok revelation i'm not on the tiktok but i learned this from a tiktok i saw on twitter that by sag contract sag shows are supposed to be paying actors for auditions which like mind blown would change the universe never going to happen but is apparently in the contract from 1937 and we're going to wrap it all up with an Ask No Film School, which is a very simple tech question, and I love it. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. Can I just say, can I just oh, say, I learned it from a TikTok I saw on Twitter. Could be like the name of a book about the last <laughs> five years, like, and it would be awesome. I just loved that line. It was great. I'm just giving you props for that line. It was awesome. <laughs> So, top story this week, I saw on Twitter that a movie Amsterdam, which was not at all on my radar, bombed over the weekend. I actually got to see a movie in the theater over the weekend, and Amsterdam did not even cross my mind as a movie to see. I saw Triangle of Sadness. My wife and I loved it. Oh, but so good. It brought up... It's so good. I mean, Ruben Austin's amazing. Uh, I gotta see it. Brought it. Up, I'm dying to see it. Yeah. Uh, it brought up an interesting conversation we wanted to talk about on the podcast this week, which is... This weird fixation we have on the first three days of a movie's box office to dictate whether or not it has been a success and whether or not that can affect our life as filmmakers, what we need to understand about it, what we need to fight against about it. The thing I always remember is that when the Wachowskis were originally pitching The Matrix, Keanu Reeves had just been in a movie called Johnny Mnemonic, which was a flop and was a sci-fi. And apparently, like every room they were in pitching, they were like, all right, we have a sci-fi concept about and Keanu Reeves has agreed to star in it like they already had Keanu and everyone's like Keanu sci-fi Johnny Mnemonic never gonna work and it's like this is the matrix (laughs) which like whatever you think about the overall oeuvre of the Wachowskis and I love most of it Cloud Atlas will move on I love so much of it (laughs) bound the mate the original matrix is a solid movie but the problem is is Flops give people the weird, like... To put it mildly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's magnificent and genre-defining and changed the course of what cinema became in the last 20 years. But, like, people, like, studio executives, business types, bean counteries, tend to learn the wrong lessons from things. And I think I think the reason why this all struck us is Amsterdam is the kind of movie that I know George and I, and I think everybody, like, a lot of indie filmmakers love the idea of, like, oh, my God, it's a comedy in the 30s and there's hijinks and stars, like, 
This is the kind of thing I think a lot of us would love to make. And it's like, fucking Christ, and you made a shit one and it flops. How much harder is it going to be to get the good one made now because this one flopped? But there's other issues we should hit on. I don't want to dominate, but like, we also have to talk about like, is this, is the Me Too stuff with David O. Russell part of why it flopped? And also talk about some other things like the Norseman and uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the universe. Well, one thing I want to call out is that no other industry looks or measures uh, weekend time increments to determine success. That is <laughs> insane that we do that. And it feels like a fake vanity metric that I understand like somebody wants to hang their hat on something for all the work that they've done. And there is a really interesting, very old school market of like, by like buying time to extend a a run in the theaters that's like apparently a bunch of old men calling each other on telephones to like get something out there even longer than expected but it it does feel like a just an inaccurate way to be measuring the success of something and uh as charles brought up we see how things like scott pilgrim which i think it it was five in the rankings when it was its first weekend and it was like seen as as a flop has staying power. I also think of like the nightmare before Christmas was a flop for many, many years. And then it now like, look at how many angsty teenagers are still wearing sweatshirts. Like it had its, it had its rebirth. So my, it's, my it's, daughter has a, has a Sally backpack. Like she's obsessed with, you know, and she's okay. a six year old. <laughs> here's a, here's a crazy thing about nightmare before Christmas. That's a great example of a flop that had crazy staying power because, and probably really hard to pitch, right? How do you sell that? Like ever, but like, okay. So, and all the time it's about how hard it is to do at Disneyland. They spend like a quarter of the year redoing the haunted mansion as nightmare before Christmas, literally the most popular thing there when they do it. And it's not, all they do is put up some decorations on the damn thing. <laughs> it's a ride. That's like gotta be close to a hundred years old or something. There's nothing. And my kids go crazy for it. My little son waves at Jack like it's a person there. It's like, <laughs> and this is a movie that, so like think of the money that for the bean counters that has been made off of this thing that didn't have a good first three days. Like yeah. just thinking of it in that context is insane. It's insane how much money that could be produced from something that, yeah, it had a crummy first three days. I had a crummy first three years. Like it, it <laughs> yeah, took time right. to right, catch right. on. And I think it's hard for like, people who are so tuned into the market and in development positions to remember that context and remember like big swings do yield things like that. I mean, I do have to say my dad did, thought it was too scary for me. So he hid the VHS tape and there was just like an empty nightmare before Christmas for many years that I really wanted to watch it, but um, wait, wait, I was wait. deprived. So, so he hid the, the tape, but not the box. Yes, how rude is that? Just, just to taunt you. you. Just so, yeah, yes. you have to look thing. at it. You, you can't have it. It was that? An, empty, an empty VHS sleeve. Like, of, of this is why you're promise. a filmmaker. This, right? Like, this right. is the secret box unlocked of like yeah. the like. I'm what gonna is use that in my pitches. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> um, sounds like something J. Abrams would have. Yeah. Uh, but then the thing is, is it's not always three years. Like the the Norseman, which opened earlier this year which is Robert Eggers, which like all of the film nerds love. If there's one of the current crop of filmmakers, all my students love, it's Robert Eggers. Didn't make its money back in its opening weekend. So they pulled it from theaters quickly. It's so crazy to watch how fast the ads all come down. 
Because in the city, like yeah. in New York City, it's like all over the subway, it's all over the buses. And the Norseman was everywhere. And then like one day later, it was back to H&M ants. It's like so fast. <laughs> they same the here. Ants. It was the same in LA. <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah. How much money is just wasted? Like just utterly wasted. Anyway. Well, Sorry. yeah, and it's just but, it's just like the 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 emphasis that's put on just the the box office thing at like initially. Like, did we talk about Bros yet? Like that whole thing, how that falls. Oh, so we got to talk about that. You're right. That ties into this conversation. Well, let me finish the Norseman real quick. It's already profitable from paid VOD. Three months later, it is now back in profit from paid VOD. So, like, we're in a different world where there's many different. Like, the the opening box office is often just like a marketing wave to drive paid VOD. So, like, mm-hmm. why should we care about this number that is just about helping another number now? But yeah, Bros. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean they they put. I mean. The, the the marketing of that film put so much pressure on its box office release. Like it was it was very unfair to it. And I think like most of the the like stuff I've read about it almost has nothing to do with the quality of the film, which I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's gotten pretty decent reviews and, and I'm I'm a big fan. Like I want more comedies in the theater. And I think they just put so much pressure on its release, obviously for the reasons of um like the historicness of whatever you know, like everything within the content of the film, but it's just like, they really, 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 really seem to put all of their eggs in the, the box office basket. And that movie is going to do extremely well on streaming. Like it's going to, it's going to be top to watch for probably a couple of weeks at least. But it's, then it's like, how do you quantitize the success of that on the back end too? It's like, how much money are they paying to have the streaming rights and all that? So I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. it's a weird time. Rom-coms feel like uh, a long tail game like you watch a rom-com over the holidays with your family bros is gonna be breaking down barriers with families K- kids will be coming out a little easier but i don't know how rom-coms are playing in box office theaters i don't know if it's something that gets people butts in seats in theaters with the same urgency as like an epic film there was a tricky thing with bros where a lot of the marketing on bros got tied to this idea that it was like a groundbreaking thing to see a gay rom-com but the problem is, is that only feels groundbreaking from within Hollywood, where the groundbreaking thing about it is that it's a studio gay rom-com. But yeah. Yeah. to the public, most of the public isn't really aware of the difference of like independent cinema and studio cinema. And there have been independent gay rom-coms for 25 years. There's Go Fish from the <laughs> Night. Like, like this is not groundbreaking material for the culture or for mm-hmm. cinema or for television. The groundbreaking thing is just a studio made a gay rom-com. But like most people have no idea if it was a studio, like, like it's not a really good point. They have no idea. They certainly don't care. Like they certainly don't care anywhere. (laughs) Like, like, uh, so like it was just a really, it's, it's a weird pat on the self back. Like, uh, of course, pat on the self back, but like, it was like one of those weird things where it almost seems like the industry was like kind of proud of itself for doing this. And sometimes I feel like some of the marketing, like the intensity of the, the billboards in LA and stuff like that feels a little bit like, it's like, Hey, everybody, look what I did. It's like around here in the bubble where it's just like, you're not, you're not putting all that stuff out in like Nashville. Like you're not covering Nashville with billboards. You're covering LA with billboards. You're talking to your, in your echo chamber. And I've always thought that was like a strange dynamic, but I, I, there was something I wanted to, to touch on, like a question I wanted to pose because we're talking about how we don't like that. This is the way it is. We don't like that this is how success is determined, basically. Mm-hmm. And it changed. And like Charles put it really well, we are all going to be saddled with, as creatives or, or aspiring creatives, 
whatever, how, if David O. Russell blows it like that, because also like he's a bad guy, but like if he blows it like with the movie and like the movie doesn't do well, and then every one of us who's going to try and go out and pitch or take something that's similar that maybe is good, they're going to be like, no way. Like it's a categorical no, because David O. Russell blew it. So <laughs> it's like, how, what can we do? What is the solution? What is the answer? Like, do we have to, because you'll hear people say, I hear it all the time. Like, no one's buying blank stuff anymore. It's like, well, they're not until they are. So, like, yeah. what's the strategy? Like, what is what do what do filmmakers? What can you do to be like, yeah, but forget the thing that just happened. Like, I have something different and special. And you might be mistaken and think that just because it has Keanu Reeves and it's sci-fi that it's going to be bad. But you're wrong. Like, what do you do? I think from like pitching to studios, what I've seen is. Sometimes you have to sit on it, like sit on it for a couple years and come back to it. And that's why you hear these stories of it took, you know, the woman king, Mm. it took them five years to sell Mm. it through. So I think that's one element of it that, or you have to go like the indie route, like, or, or a sort of like amalgamation of other ways to bring together the production. I think those are my two thoughts. What about you, Todd? Well, I was just gonna say, I think so much of it right now is like the theatrical experience is almost looked at as more of like a uh, like a theme park ride now i think it's like the, the the conversation regularly comes up like is this like a theater movie or can i watch it at home kind of thing and mm-hmm. it's like the way that people classify you know like so horror movies are still doing pretty well unfortunately the horrible jurassic park movies make so much money like right. just things like that and it's just you know it's like People are going to Disneyland. They're 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 going on the roller coaster, and um, you know it's mm. it's people don't seem to value laughing in a theater with other people anymore, or crying in a theater with other people anymore. They just want to like have the big loud noises flash at them for a while. And I think I don't know. It's it it's weird because as much as I hate that, I have definitely like kind of done that a little bit. I think I've been guilty of that a couple times. Like there's a movie that I really want to support and and I'll you know unfortunately like be really busy at the time that it comes out and I just don't really go through the extra effort to go see it anymore like I don't know if that's a result of the pandemic I don't know if that's the result of just where I'm at in life but like yeah I mean I used to get my ass out of the house and go see a movie and now I, I'm just kind of it, it's I don't know maybe 10% more thought goes into it than it used to and maybe that 10% is much larger for other people than it used to be I don't know I agree with those. I think I reluctantly agree with Gigi's points because I don't want those to be the things, but they are the things. Like, I wish there was another way, but it seems to me that that is the, the answer is you have to wait. I talked to a director of a movie called Medieval. That was a period piece with Michael Caine in it and another big name. I forgot. Good actor, young guy. He talked about how it was like a 12 year process from when he started with the script. And I was like, holy crap. But he did. He did it. He got there. It was not studio. Oh, wait, don't quote me on that. It could be wrong. Um, either way, it was just like that long game is part of it. The independent route is part of it. So I don't know, Charles. You're. I think you're good. You want no, to I, for me in terms of strategies for filmmakers. The strategy I always like to try and remind people of, or I always try and do myself, is five things in the passel. You should have five things in the passel at any given time. Mm-hmm. Now, I have friends who got one-itis about a project. I have a friend who likes to tell a story. Of, he's like, I do not one-itis. recommend this. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I try not to use, like, pickup artist dating terms, but, like, that is, like, a, you know, like, it's a thing. 
I have a buddy who's like, I got one itis about a movie. I got obsessed about making this movie. I spent five years trying to get this movie made. I finally got the movie made, but I nearly bankrupted my family doing it. Oh. Um, and like, you know, I know people who one itis has worked out. I, I know more people who had one project, they were going to get made and it never happened. Yeah. And of the people I know who like have had nice big careers where like a lot of stuff is happening, most of them, including that guy I know who had one itis, like if you talk to him about his career now, there's about five projects that you can pay attention to at any given time. You should be trying to get made. Yeah. And, you know, a good strategy for those five is a couple of them should be easier than others. Like, yeah. there should be a couple things that are, like, not a period piece, fit within a predictable genre, fit mm-hmm. within a structure of, like, this isn't going to be a risk. And then there should also be your fucking period romance Baby. in Istanbul yeah. in 898 pre-Christian. <laughs> And like <laughs> the hardest thing to make, just make it the hardest thing to make ever. Yeah. Only but kids because and you dogs. don't know, you might be in a meeting. Because a, a frequent thing that's said in a meeting is, uh, "Do you have anything else?" Very mm-hmm. co- like eighty percent of meetings, people are like, "What else? Are you, what else are you kicking around?" Yes, you might find yes. someone who's a billionaire now, and their undergraduate major was in Eastern, you know, Eastern Orthodox art, and like vibes with the, you. Don't know. But you should have a the time may come. You also might meet with somebody who like like last like like that that weird three day craziness can work in your favor. Where it could ha- just so happen that somebody made an Istanbul epic that yeah. had a huge weekend, yeah. and you're talking to somebody that week, and you're like, "Well, the funny thing is, it's always been my dream to make this movie about Istanbul in 1898." <laughs> like so, and the script is ready. I can send it right. over. Yeah. In fact, your coverage reader read it two years ago. We can call them up for coverage. So. Like, there will be moments, like The Wolfman with Guillermo del Toro. I remember that had, like, a big weekend, and, like, everybody was talking about it. And I was like, there's four people, I lived in L.A. at the time, I was like, there's four people in town right now who are sending around Wolfman scripts they've been trying to get made for years. Because, like, vampires were over, and for a minute, it was like, it's going to be wolves, baby. It's going to be wolves. That's Um, one of my favorite things that, like, when people, like, like, your film friends, like, when a movie comes out, and they, like, they get all depressed because it's kind of like their script a little yeah. bit. And they're like, yes, oh, there yes. goes my chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like no, 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 no. You got to you gotta pray for the moment that your idea is on the screen and doing well because everybody's going to want the same thing. Right. Like, right. You got to pray for that day to come. It's yeah. same, same, but different. And this is actually, it could be a good tool when going into a pitch, what, t- talking to people who are hanging their hats on box office numbers, you should be able to find a comp and tell them how it's similar, but different in this way. And and then they, then things will click to them. Oh, well, that was a success or people are watching The Staircase. Yeah. Same but different. But don't pick like uh, Ishtar. Uh, that's dating me. But well, don't no. pick... Uh, I don't Blair know Witch. what that is. Don't Blair Witch is not allowed to be a comp. Anytime I yeah. see a deck and Blair Witch is in it, first off, your comps have to be within the last three or four years because yes. the market's changed so much. But secondly, Blair Witch, arguably the most profitable film of all time. Your film is not comparable to Blair Witch. You are not going to make your film for $60,000 and make $320 million. It's not going to happen. You can't have that in your comps. If I see Blair Witch in comps in a deck, I'm immediately like, this person, this person's full of it. That actually- The last three years is good advice. Sorry, Gigi. I was just going to throw out there. Last three years is good advice. It really is. Um, Going back to- the Blair Witch being the most profitable film of all times. I remember seeing the farewell opening weekend because I had lived in China and I was like, oh, I want to support this film. And it was the most profitable opening weekend on based on the ratio of theaters that it was in. So 
it it obviously led to a very prolific career for Lulu Wang and Danny Melia, who I used to work for. And uh, but what's so awesome is that if you want to see success for an indie film, going out and buying a ticket for opening weekend actually can have such a positive impact. And it does make a difference. So um, the way that I psychologically trick myself, Todd, if this is a motivation at all, is through my AMC Stubbs Pass. And I'm like, if I don't see two two movies this month, then I'm getting ripped off. So that's how I motivate myself. Yeah, that's definitely something I need to jump on board with. I, I had the Alamo Draft House one for a while. I just need to re-up it. But yeah, yeah. I feel I feel I, kind of bad now. I'm like, man, I'm like killing indie cinema. And it's the very thing that I like complain fault. about all the time yeah. is that there's no more <laughs> good movies, but then I don't go to the theaters. Be, being a parent makes it a whole other world of hard at any time. And we don't, it's not like, look, that's a whole other story. So don't be, don't beat <laughs> yeah. yourself up. But I, I actually really like what Gigi just said, which is the support at that opening weekend. Because as much as we hate that, that is a really good point. If you find out something, it's almost like you got to know when it's out. And also these day and date things, when a streamer gets its release in theaters and streaming, if you can go see it in the theater, you should, because it's a good way to, to keep that practice alive, because that practice is probably going to start slipping by the wayside at some point soon. Like Knives Out, Onions Delight, or whatever that new one is, yeah, that's going to be, Onions yeah, that's going to be a day and date. So go see the Bloomin' Onion. You got to go see that one in theaters if you can thanksgiving week they're doing the one week run on that and you you, everybody every every listener we should all meet in a theater and go see it for thanksgiving week because yeah we should we can podcast do that right i want to go back to david o russell again real quick and i want to capture something else about this so everything shitty we know about david o russell we already knew before me too right in 2004 before (laughs) youtube we had a viral video sensation of him yelling at lily tomlin who's an american treasure so a lot of people wrote him off then because they were like, well, fuck that guy. George Clooney no wrote him off in 1999. No one should ever be yelled at. American Treasure or not the way he yelled at her. It was Oh, bad. my God. Yeah. <laughs> like, but then 1999, George Clooney was like, I would never work with him again. And if I saw him in the street, I would punch him. <laughs> 2011, his niece filed sexual assault charges against him. Like, he's not a good human. But it didn't affect his box office. His last movie came out in 2016. 2017? No, it was Me Too. Me Too was 2017. Is that part of this? Because I mean, look, my Twitter is a very like lefty socialist bike obsessed Twitter. But like (laughs) when Amsterdam came up in my Twitter over the last couple of weeks, people were like, why would I see a movie from that trash? And like that was, it was, it felt very different when that movie was coming up in conversation in a way that like I haven't seen any of his in the theater since I heard Huckabee's just because I like, but I did watch Silver Lang playbooks at home. I contributed to his Netflix streaming numbers. Like I watched the Joy one where he weirdly casts Jennifer Lawrence at 24 to play a 50 year old. Like he, like I watched. No, that I saw him? that in the theater. I saw that in the theater. Silver Linings playbook. Yeah. Man, no. I liked Silver Linings playbook. That's sad. <laughs> it sucks I when you like it, it and you're like, damn it. He uh, made it. See, I, I just, I, 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 maybe I, I just like Brad Cooper. He's the best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely one of his better roles. I, I've always kind of hated that movie, and I really didn't like American Hustle when everyone was oh, freaking yeah. out about no, no, that no. one. That not, one was yeah. not for me. You don't yeah, want to watch someone had, palely imitate Scorsese for two hours yeah, with no exactly. plot or coherent story? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, he's he's just he's just a POS, and there's no other way to put it. And, like, having any, like, 
the movies, the good ones aren't good enough. Like, what is good enough to justify it? But I, I think we're living in that time. I also exist in an echo chamber. It includes some toxic sports fandom, but the rest of it is a lot like Charles's. So, and my feed is also similarly just like, fuck that guy. So I don't know. And I can't say honestly, if it's about the movie or about, you know, sometimes it's, it's almost like there's this weight, like you can do a certain amount of bad stuff. Yeah. And at a certain point, like the bad stuff gets pile gets so big or that like people are just like, no, like that name, I just associate with bad stuff, you know? Like, I don't know if he just... But has he done anything point. new that was bad? Or did the culture just change a little bit where we're like, well, fuck it, bad guys suck. I have, so hard for me I have to an tell. idea that I want to put out into the universe and I hope somebody makes this tool because I honestly, like, I'm not really on Twitter. I do follow you both on Twitter, but I, yeah, Sorry. I just am... <laughs> No, it's all good. I just am not on it because I get overwhelmed by it. And No, good for you. I wish I could quit. (laughs) But I'm on Instagram. That's its own thing. So I saw this movie. A friend who's part of the Academy invited me and I like they were doing it. I was like, this movie. And they had a talk after. And I was like, I have to go home and cook dinner. I'm going to leave. And that's how I felt about the whole thing. Uh, I have to go somewhere (laughs) else. But I wish there was something like Rotten Tomatoes, but for people, like quality of people verified by like actual news reporting that's like a rotten producer director and it's like okay i can like gut check if i want to put my money towards supporting this person i love you know what it would be like is like charles is probably super familiar with this thing but rate my professor or whatever that was like it would be kind of cool to have something like that that like of course the problem is there would be some really awful trolls who would absolutely ratings bomb people who were probably good people yeah. because they hate, just like they do that with movies sometimes. So I've not been on Rate by a Professor since 2013, but in 2013, my Rate prof- my Professor had one review in which I was a condescending asshole who wore my leather jacket to class and thought I was cool. Now, this is probably true. I am sure I thought I was cool wearing my leather jacket. But the fact that that was the only review, I was like, nobody... None of my, like, like just, it was like, I, and I have not been back to that website since. Like, it's been eight years. Your your bio and everything. Like, Charles Aid is a condescending. (laughs) I just wears a leather jacket. I just picture you reading it and you look down and you're wearing the jacket still and you're like, <laughs> I, I thought this jacket made me look cool. I like this. Oh, sounds like you're maybe so that's like your Indiana Jones. That's that that could be Indiana Jones, right, my professor? I mean, I, I. I do love the idea of having more knowledge somehow. Like, obviously, there's no way to really build that tool without it becoming like a weird social credit score, dystopian, like, trolled thing. But I do love it. I remember in grad school, I didn't want to give... I wanted to see Passion of the Christ because I love Caleb Deschanel. And despite having complicated feelings about Mel Gibson as a human, like, I like he's an interesting filmmaker. But I didn't want to pay for it because I didn't want him to get money. So I paid a second time for Eternal Sunshine. Because I was like, fuck it, Eternal Sunshine rocks. You should get my money again. And then I snuck into Last Temptation of Christ because Caleb Deschanel is one. Passion. Oh, (laughs) Temptation of Christ, I would love to go pay for it to see in a theater. Please, someone (laughs) re-release Temptation of Christ. I would love to pay to see that in the theater. I've only seen it at home. Second run, Last Temptation of Christ. There was a a whole lot of people who were memeing, seeing Morbius, but paying for everything everywhere all at once instead. Fuck yeah. So they could go. I respect that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah Weird poor times. morbius <laughs> i mean that is one that is not gonna pay off in the end the morbius pivod 
is not is not going to bring Morbius back around. They're going to have to put it back in theaters a third time to make it pay off. We should, that campaign has to get going, by the way. Get it back for the third time. All right. Well, let's keep moving again on to something. I, a TikTok I saw on Twitter was <laughs> yes. an actor. I sent this to everybody on the feed uh, talking about how, according to the 1937 SAG contract, actors who are auditioned for a parts but don't get it get half day's pay which today would be about 500 bucks. Now, I want to point out, just to fact check this TikTok a little bit, that it's this 1937 SAG contract and there are many newer contracts since Uh then. And I don't think it's in the newer contracts. And I don't think the way contracts work is that the old one, like if you don't mention the word auditions in the next one, it's still the old one's terms. It's like, no, if we don't mention the word auditions in the next one, it goes back to not being paid is I believe the reason why auditions are not paid. But what the reason why I want to bring this TikTok up is honest like my brother in Christ, it never crossed my mind. But yes, actors should be paid for auditions. Like I don't want to have to do it on the tiny little like budget <laughs> shit that I do. Budget. Yeah, like the micro budget little features I do. I don't want to have to do it. But like it's literally one of those things that once you realize how much of an actor's life is auditioning, and how much of the job is that process, the fact that is it is not paid is insane. And the fact that a it never occurred to me until I saw this TikTok. And B, as soon as I saw the TikTok, I was like, oh, if that was just the standard, it would be part of your budget. Like, already in my budget is paying a casting director. Even on tiny-ass little shit, I hire a casting Mm -hmm. director, because a casting director's worth the money. If it was just the standard where I had to double that, where it's like, oh, I'm doing this $80,000 spot, $4,000 going to the casting director, and I just had to double it and pay $4,000 people to audition, right? Or eight or whatever. If it was just, like, habit by now, everybody would do it. Right. And, but we and have I to have get to work around. Like, Go ahead. The thing I, it's like, you still want to be able to bring the right people in and audition until you find the right fit, because we know that casting is everything. But, you know, when you audition for a theater school, you do a monologue or, or even a musical, you, you sing a song that's like often outside of the content that you're doing. So you can still vet people beforehand and say, Oh, I like this performance. I saw their dramatic monologue that they posted on actors access. Cool. Now let's give them the 10 pages of lines to learn and pay them. So we can see if they're a fit for this role. It feels like there's a missed opportunity and so much extra work created. And the thing that broke my heart in that TikTok that you saw on Twitter was that most of the videos don't even get a view. That's the most messed up thing because this is hours of work for people who are probably working like a bunch of other jobs and taking acting classes at night. And this is also work that, you know, my friends who are in SAG and who are leading TV shows and the stars of movies have to do. They have the luxury of being able to like wake up, do yoga in the morning, do a video and then do yoga at night. But like not everyone has that. So what's also one of those things. I wonder about that zero views thing. I've never, I mean, maybe the casting director's not watching stuff. By the time I get a spreadsheet from casting, I at least watch a little bit of everything, but I wonder mm-hmm. like how much of it, because like I definitely, eight, I've been eight seconds into a three minute video and been like, nope, yeah, nope. No. And I wonder if that eight seconds is not counting as a view. I wonder how far into it you have to get the view. Mm-hmm. So I, I suspect everyone's at least watching something. The zero views seem weird. But I do think if you had to pay everyone 50 in addition, right? If it was just like a blanket, everybody gets 50 for an addition. You'd be more careful about who you ask for additions because you're like, yeah. oh, this, this, I'm only going to ask 80 people for this or whatever. And you'd watch them more carefully. If you had pre-taped things, it would be way better. Also, as an actor, even if you're doing something else for the day, like 
oh, all right, I'm getting a little 50. I'm going to do this read. I think it would change the whole thing. And I think people would be better in the additions because mm-hmm. it would feel less like an imposition and more like a thing you're like, yeah. How do we make it happen, okay. folks? I just like want to pull back for a second or like back it up for a second and just talk about how auditions are from front end to like the whole thing for everyone. The worst, like the worst, like everything about it sucks. It's like it, the, the, the experience is miserable. And I really feel like it has to be stressed that like for the people who find a way as actors to not make it that, that's amazing. Like, and that's a struggle and a challenge they work on. I've known countless actors who've had varying levels of success and failure and just the whole, the process, the gearing yourself up, the showing up, the mental prep, the everything about it. And then just the way you're kind of treated. And here's the thing. It's not like the other people, the people on the other side of the table. I know so much of it is virtual now, but like, it's not so much that they are bad guys because being on that side, it is also kind of miserable to be honest. Like, and the, the zero minute seconds watch thing is kind of like, because it's like, it's so hard. It's just becomes so hard. It's not even that you're disrespecting people anymore. Some people are obviously, but like, it's just like hard to focus. It's hard to identify things. It becomes mush. Your brain stops working and you zone out. And you've heard the same thing 50 times and you, you're trying to cling on anything that you can to make sense of it and you get through these days. And like, it, it's just a really challenged process. So I do believe like, and I, this is the other piece of it economically that makes it so hard to fix is that there is the supply demand thing is just so out of whack, like so insanely out of whack. Like here's an example and a, and a little anecdote, like, I know a guy who was like a semi pro basketball player, like enough, like college and whatever. And he lives in LA and he does a little bit of acting and he went out for winning time. He did a little part on it. And I remember saying to him, like, you got that, you saw that open call and you showed up and he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it was like, as everything I know about this world and having lived here forever, I was even like, I mean, there can't be that many guys, right? Your size who are good at playing basketball, who can also act a little. And he was like, dude, the room was packed. There was like thousands of me. And it was like, like guys who are over six, six who can can play basketball. There's like that many. Yes. The answer is yes. Even for a niche thing like that, like even me, the most jaded, like like, you can still catch me being naive about how many people there are for everything, which is why just a whole long story, just to say, that's why it's so hard to fathom even though I agree it would make it all so much so much less miserable if money was exchanged because everybody would have to lock in a little more and it couldn't just be everyone in the world shows up and you're sitting there watching thousands and thousands because money's on the line. Again, it's just that there's so many people who will do it and that makes it so hard um, to value it properly. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd imagine if they if they make that part of the process, everyone gets paid. I'm, I'd imagine that would directly lead to probably less people being seen. Right. Probably. And, but those people wouldn't waste their time and they would, you know, the people choosing who would come in would be choosing more carefully, all that kind of stuff. I think the only thing about it that kind of pops into my head, and I'm definitely on the side of them getting paid. I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm just saying it does seem like it could potentially lead to like less, 
like magical, like, oh my God, I would have never seen you for this role yes. and, but you're perfect for it type situations. I don't know. Totally. You'd, you'd really be spending your bullets carefully there. Yeah. Like, and, and that would improve. I do think that would improve the process for everyone involved. However, it would limit that like, oh my God, this nobody, this like off the street is just blowing me away and I never would have, but let's be honest. Like that's probably not happening. Right. I mean, it does happen <laughs> occasionally, right? Like Sadly. you also, you also have to think about it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with, I, uh, I'm sadly also a little bit with thought of, you look at like how they cast Haley Steinfeld, right? They needed someone for that, the Coen brothers, Western movie, true, true West grit. or whatever. True yeah. Grit. And they had to pay a casting team for like nine months to travel America doing casting calls where they saw like 26,000 10 year olds or something. Mm -hmm. And they found Haley Steinfeld who's now a star and is magical in that movie. And like, is that movie? I mean, obviously Ruster Cogburn is also great in that movie. Matt Damon's good in that movie. In fact, everybody's like, it's the Coens. They're good, but she's great. And you're like, yeah. well, shit, are they going to see 26,000 kids? If that then becomes $130,000. Great point. I and, mean, yeah. Winning time's another example where I think their casting was just like, they had to go like when you're looking for people, I just, cause I was talking about it earlier, but yeah, it's true. It's not possible if you're, but it, it's just the toughest thing to figure out how to fix. It's so, toxic the whole thing yeah. everything about auditions well one thing that like we can do as like indie or emerging filmmakers is be like i think being an actor is the most vulnerable and position to be in and you have so little power in the process so like when you're bringing people in treat them well and it sounds so cheesy but like i remember one time i was helping produce a friend's short and he told the actor on set he's like you're not important in this scene, like, get out of the way. Don't worry about it. And and I'm like, don't say that. So these like little things where you can just <laughs> support and be thankful. And especially if you're doing, if you're like paying them pennies. Uh, and when you find actors who can act here in LA, like there, there's so much work that goes into it. That's unseen work. And we just get to see the end product of it. And I think it's important to know. I also think that give them time. I have a friend who's an actor who's like, half of my auditions are shit I have to do that day or the next day. Yeah. And like, he'll do it. He'll drop it to be in a Showtime show. But if you're like an up and coming person working on your indie feature, working on your passion project short, put up your casting notice with like a three week window of when people can get auditions in and try and make sure you're cast for all of your parts a few months for your shoot so that yeah. you're not doing that thing where it's like, oh my God, we don't have someone for tomorrow. Put up a casting notice, get people to get on tape. Who can get on tape today? All right. The best one who's on tape today will book tomorrow. And it's like, well, that's, that's not considerate to them. Cause then a whole bunch of people are going to feel that pressure and are going to try and get themselves on tape today. And like, are going to like step out of their work day to try and tape for you. And that's, like, we can try and be considerate of the process, especially when we're not paying well. I just think a good PSA, kind of piggybacking on what everybody's saying here, because I've had some acting experience, and I think, like, not professional, not, like, much professional, but, like, if, like, you have done it, like, if you've ever been in front of a camera for a little bit, even like I have in just Channel 101 crap, or, like, not crap, but, yeah, crap, <laughs> like, just, like, little things, like, silly things, like, or on stage. Or in an acting class, anytime you've been at the mercy of someone with a camera and then they're editing it or like any of that, like, I think it's good for filmmakers to get a little exposure to it if they can, 
because it will kind of change your, your understanding of what they're doing or going through or experiencing or how to help them and not hurt them, like, and how to get better work and not worse work. Cause sometimes you talk too much and you make them feel crazy. And like, they're in a super vulnerable position constantly. And sometimes that's why they behave in strange ways and we judge them. But like, like I'm talking about them, like they're animals or like another species, <laughs> but like I interviewed Helena Rain who did Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And she's mm. such an accomplished actress. And she talks all about how that, like just life uh, as an actress informs so much of working with actors and prepping for them and putting them in the best position to succeed. And that is so much a part of like good directing is like casting and the famous thing is like 80% casting, but like making them feel safe. Mm -hmm. Like how does Paul Thomas Anderson's consistently just get people to knock it out of the park? Like some of it's the writing, but some of it is just like, they, they feel so safe. They feel so loved on his sets, you know? I'll also say this and I'll wrap with this. We've got to move to our next subject. I have a perfect audition record. I auditioned three times and I booked all three jobs. <laughs> and I love saying that because it makes actors want to murder me. But even within that I'm context, 0 for 1 on professional jobs. <laughs> We're the inverse. Yeah. I was 0 for 1 and I was like, never again. That's it. <laughs> oh my God. I stopped after three and I booked all three. If any of them had not books, I don't know if I would be in entertainment. I think I would live in Canada. But oh, wow. I will tell you this. I remember I was driving to an audition that I'd been invited by the producer to audition. He was like, hey, I think you're perfect for this. Can you come in? I already talked to the network. We start shooting in a week, so we're a little bit desperate. And I think you already kind of have it. Can you just come in and like be you? I showed him some videos of you. So I drove to Discovery Networks. And on my drive to Discovery Networks, I lived on the east side. It was on the west side. Insecurities that have not been in my brain <laughs> since I was 12 just bubbled to the surface of my brain oh, no. where I was like, is my nose weird? Like, I was just like, is it like, no. is there like, and it was like, I was a 12 year old again. I was just, it was so, and I was like, and I was dating an actress at the time and we went to dinner that night and I was telling her the story and she's like, that's every day of every actor's life. Oh. And I was like, yeah, we really need to be nicer at additions. We really, really need to be nicer at additions. Um, and I booked that job. So there it is. So moving on, because we gotta we got to keep moving. The schedule is going. Uh, we have a great Ask No Film School this week. It's so simple. Fatty Dona asks, I'm very confused. Which editing software should I learn? And it's like, I love this question. It is so simple. It is so to the point. But it's a fair point. There's four major editing platforms right now. Avid Media Composer, Premiere, Final Cut 10, and uh, Resolve. And they all have compelling reasons to learn them. And I'm going to say the short answer is resolve. And I can give I you agree. a long answer. Woohoo! Uh, Todd, what you, I want to hear the Todd take. Yeah, I want to hear the Todd take, and then I'll expand on mine. Resolve a million times. Resolve is, all Todd day. Take resolve, is a resolve, resolve. <laughs> <laughs> it's all resolved now. Um, I think, uh, yeah, there's no, I can't make a single. I mean, a lot of people like hit film these days. Hit film's kind of coming up in the world. And that's also a, a free-to-play piece of software. Um, but I think uh, resolve it's so it's so cool how it it hits this note of being a, a professional tool, but it's free, so beginners can hop in there, and it's pretty pretty use, usable for that. And um, yeah, I don't see any reason not to go straight into Resolve. It covers all bases, in my opinion. So I'm going to expand only to say this: the jobs for Resolve are growing. I'm seeing more of them, but more of the jobs are going to be in Premiere and Media Composer when the client cares, right? If a client comes to you and they're like, hey, edit these social videos, I'm going to send you the content, send me the cuts, they don't care what you cut in, you can do whatever you want. 
But if you're like, I'm going to try and get a post-house job or a production company job, most of those are still going to be Premiere and Media Composer, and a few of them are going to be Final Cut 10. So you should have some familiarity with Premiere and Media Composer. However, if you're not actively like, I want to work in post, if you're like, I am a general filmmaker, I need to have some post skills so I can edit my own projects, edit projects for my friends, maybe pick up some freelance work, then Resolve is the best one because A, it's free. B, the way it is free is really smart in that there's a paid version, but the features are really pro features. They're really stuff you would use as a pro. I have done jobs in the free version where I've delivered whole features in the free version. It's totally fine. It works. It's an amazingly robust. Avid Media Composer has like a free thing, but it's really like a free practice tool. It's very limited. It You use it to practice the interface. So, but the other thing is at this point, it's less about learning software and it's more about learning ideas, learning the concept of putting shots in order and telling a story and introducing characters and managing rhythm. And so you want to do that in the free software and you want to get really good at it in the free software, which is Resolve, which also has a really great color grading tool built in and Fairlight and Fusion. And then if you get to the point where you're like, you know, I really should work in post. This is where I want to be. You should get Media Composer first, which is their free tool, learn the Media Composer interface and how differently it deals with media. If you're a student, you should go ahead and buy Final Cut 10. The student deal on Final Cut 10 is 199 for like basically a lifetime license. And if you're a student or have an EDU, you should get it because you should know it. You should know all four. The tricky thing is there's no real way to learn Premiere without paying for it. But once you've mastered the other three, then like pay for a month of Premiere and practice. The thing is, is the softwares are more similar than they are different. The skills of like managing my media, organizing stuff, learning how things work, you can learn all that and resolve for free and then try and pick up the other software as you need it for the jobs that come your way. And I see more and more work in resolve compared to especially three or four years ago. It is really taking off as an edit tool and it is the color grading tool. So, it, Charles, it owns I'm, that market. I'm, I'm curious. Are you still encountering media composer projects pretty often in your market? I, ha- I, I'll, I'll just say like for myself, I, my entire career, I've never encountered one, one need to know that software. So I'm just curious, like, is that, is that different in your market? New York city, television and documentary. Yeah. That's it. Like if you are not in New York or LA, you can drop media composer from the list. If you're in New York or LA, the big networks, the big studios are still media composer houses. And that's not going away. Like the Olympics cuts in media composer. Really? All of, Oh yeah. Cause you know, they'll have like nine editors. Like the footage will be coming in and nine people will be cutting like one person will be working on like a little sizzle. One person will be cutting a recap. One person will be like, work. so like that is all still media composer because of the ability to throw nine bodies at the thing. And like, what's his face? The documentarian who's like baseball, the civil war, Ken Burns, Ken Burns, all of those docs. When you They're said what's at, his face, I was like, Ken Burns, Ken Burns, what's his haircut? Is uh, more, what's his, what's like, the chop? Yeah. He, his post house is in New York, their media composer, a lot of the, like, so media composer still has a big presence in doc and still has a big presence at network. So you'll still see media composer. Like if you, if you're going to LA and you're like, I'm going to work on studio movies, well, learn media composer. That's the assistants they're hiring are media composer certified assistants. But if you're outside New York or LA, like most indie features are premiere resolve occasionally final cut 10. Like it's, it's really not, it's just a major market tool. But it's not going anywhere in the major markets. They are they are dug in. I, I also learned when Charles was my professor wearing a leather jacket. Just kidding. I don't think you're wearing a leather jacket. But you taught me how to edit in Resolve. And then I learned how to... I just shifted easily into Premiere. It's like a lot of intuitive stuff. And the rest, you can go on YouTube and find a video. I was just going to throw out there that I learned how to edit 
for real. Well, actually, the first thing I ever learned how to edit on was a camera because I edited things in camera, right? Like, so like I had to stop, <laughs> move, yeah, record. Like I made, I did video, I did my first videos often with the cam, the family camcorder, mm-hmm. and like would just like re- like it was trying to edit in camera. The next thing was this little board that like plugged into the TV that had like VHS tapes in it. And so mm-hmm. you could like make stops and starts and fast forwards. Really oh interesting to learn that way. And then the next thing, then in, uh, in college, because I'm old, I actually was allowed to use a Steenbeck. They still had them at the school <laughs> that I went to. And su- actual like Super 8 with the little cut and the tape. And man, like, I know it sounds like talking about writing a story on a, a book on a typewriter. But like, there's something about the precision and the mental, because like Charles was talking about how it, organizing your bins and like your footage and stuff like that and how important that is. There's a mental thing that it is not that different when you're taking a strip of film you just cut, that's a shot, mm-hmm. and you're hanging it on a little hook and you're like, that shot's there. I'm going to come back to that shot. I'm going to make that cut later and I'm going to bring that shot in. And like doing that, like with your brain in your hands. And then like when you're eventually like you're in final cut, you know, the first ones <laughs> like a hundred million years ago. But like when you're in there, you're like, that's the concept. It's the concept is exactly the same. It's like that shot's there. It's in the bin. This shot's here on the workbench. Mm-hmm. And like you're doing that. And I'm using my hands for the people in the pod, in the audio and not the video world. But I don't know. There's something like it is universal. And like there's yeah. a way your brain works when you're thinking about that. And when you're, when you're winding your film back and forward, cause you're just like, oh yeah, back here is where I could use that shot that I hung over. That's like on my little hanger thing. I don't know. It's, it's cool. I could geek out about it forever. Didn't Spielberg's guy famously kept using a, St- a Steenbeck, whoever it is now isn't, but like Michael Kahn, is that his name? For, for like years kept using the Steenbeck. All right. So uh, in conclusion for that, ask no film school, George's answer, start. On a steam back and go to VHS. <laughs> the other yes. three votes are for resolve. Yeah, um, mine is go back in time. Uh, you can still get a steam back on eBay. I was looking at them over the weekend. I'm not going to get one, but I was looking. If someone wants to give me one for free, oh. probably have a place to store it at the film school. So uh, I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at Charles Hain in all the places. I'm making more YouTube stuff lately. Check that shit out. Subscribe to it because apparently I'm supposed to say that. And uh, we'll see you guys all next week. I'm Gigi Hawkins. I'm at Lost in Graceland and at ggihawkins.com. And Todd is Todd Blankenship, and he's Am I a Filmmaker? Man, I'm so glad I remembered that. I'm so proud of myself. Uh, and he's on the, the socials and the YouTubes. And I'm George Edelman, and you should subscribe to this YouTube channel. And if you're just listening to this on audio, you should find the YouTube version and watch it so you can finally see us and be shocked at what we actually look like. And then also be sure to subscribe to the podcast and like it and rate it and comment and let us know what you think and send us your questions like this amazing question we got today. Oh, there he is. Todd's back. Todd, um, Todd Sorry, can do his own outro. The power, the power we went out. It, it rained for like five minutes and I guess the Texas power grid couldn't handle it. So. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll go back to your outro real quick. I outroed you. Oh. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, other good stuff at nofilmschool.com. Like us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, go to all the places, do all the things. Thank you so much. Todd, do you have anything to add about editing and saying goodbye? Uh, no, I mean, I just, <laughs> I'm really digging Resolve these days, so.
I'm, I'm a resolved boy these days. But uh, yeah, and I'm uh, I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me at MI Filmmaker, and uh, hopefully my power stays on. Nice. Thanks so much for listening and watching. <laughs>